Well, we're going to look at that more sure word of prophecy this morning. We're not off of the Christmas message, nor could we be. And so I encourage you to open your Bibles to Isaiah 9. We're going to go back into chapter 8 just a wee bit. Uh, while you're turning in your Bible to Isaiah chapter 9, though, uh, just this announcement, and that is that uh, not this coming Thursday, but the following Thursday, the seniors are going to be gathering together. We have a very special speaker. I've heard him. You're going to love him. And uh, I said, come on, you got to come and do this for our people as well. So keep that in mind, and we'll, it'll be in the bulletin next week, and bring some finger food, and you'll enjoy it. So just uh, set that aside in your schedule for not this coming Thursday, but next Thursday, if you would. Well, for those of us who are saved and belong to the Lord, Christmas obviously is filled full of meaning. We uh, rejoice in the virgin birth of God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We rejoice because He has become our Savior. He's forgiven us our sins. He has given us a reconciliation back to God. We enjoy eternal life. We know that you have the assurance of heaven. And we love walking in fellowship day by day with our Savior and Lord and God. But obviously you know that most people have turned Christmas, the real meaning of it, into a holiday focused on materialism, partying and so forth. Instead of hearing Merry Christmas, we hear Happy Holidays. After all, they don't want to offend anybody. Other than some Christmas carols, little is said or expressed about the Lord Jesus Christ's birth. And, of course, the major pitch uh, is to shoppers in an attempt to get them to come out and buy so as to bolster up and retail the retail industry. But in the midst of all this effort to downplay the real meaning of Christmas, God sends a very, very special Christmas card. And that card is filled full of hope and encouragement to those who belong to Him. I call this an early Christmas card from God. We talked a little bit about it a couple of weeks ago, and we're going to uh, backtrack a little bit and review that and then continue on about this early Christmas card from God. It's really interesting, by the way. Uh, God sent this uh, 700 years before he actually sent his gift. 700 years before his wondrous gift was given, He wrote this early Christmas card, having Isaiah pin it for him. And uh, it is really interesting to consider what world conditions were like back then when God wrote this early Christmas card. And you know what? You're going to readily see the similarities to our world today. And what were the conditions like back in Isaiah's day? Look at chapter 8, verses 16 through 18. Here he writes, bind up the testimony, seal the law among my disciples. Now look at this next part. And I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. I will even look eagerly for him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are for signs and wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. What were conditions like back in Isaiah's day when God wrote this early Christmas card? Well, the people's heart were closed to God's word, and God's word was closed to the people. Is that not a picture of our country today? People, for the they are closed to God's word. They don't want even Christmas time. They don't want to hear about Jesus, about Him being the Messiah, the Savior, and the Son of God who came to save them and so forth. And not only that, the Word of God seems to be closed to them as well. Also, God went into hiding while Isaiah was waiting eagerly for Him. There comes a point, as we saw in Romans chapter 1, where God just withdraws His blessing, withdraws His protection, withdraws in a sense, if I can say it, his presence. Not that he ever does that, because he's always omnipresent. But there is a sense in which God does not get directly involved in protecting and providing and leading for people who do not want him. And then you'll notice Isaiah and his children were signs from God to the people. Guess what? Is that not what we're here for, why he left us here? We are God's sign of his being God and his plans for the people. Secondly, though, look at verses 19 through 22 of chapter 8. When they say to you, consult the mediums and the spiritists who whisper and mutter, 
Should not a people consult their God? Should they consult the dead on behalf of the living? To the law and to the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. It is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land hard-pressed and famished, and it will turn out that when they are hungry, they will be enraged and curse their king and their God as a face upward. Then they will look to the earth and behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be driven away into darkness. You notice the people had no dawn. That's what happens when God removes Himself. When He withdraws His blessing, His provisions, and so forth. And as the king goes, so go the people. I think we could identify and make an analogy there too in our day, could we not? Here King Ahaz, he was in serious trouble confronting Judah and Jerusalem, but uh, King Ahaz would not turn back to God for anything. In fact, he came from a very godly background, dear ones. His grandpa, King Uzziah, continued to seek God, the Bible says. His dad, King Jotham, also walked with God and he sought God. But not King Ahaz. He had made molten images to the Baals and burned incense in the valley of Ben-Hinnon and even burned his sons in the fire according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had driven out before the sons of Israel. He sacrificed and burned incense on the high places, on the hills, and under every green tree. And even when he was defeated by the gods of Samaria, he went up there and got an image of them and made those gods as well. So what did God do? What does he do when a nation turns away from him that's known him? He puts even greater pressure upon them. We can identify with that today in our nation. But even that did not work. Ahaz would not repent and turn back to him. And so God even told the king, he said, Listen, I want you to exercise faith and trust me so much, you can ask for a sign out of heaven or from earth beneath, and I will do it just to get you to walk by faith and trust me in this terrible dilemma and problem you're facing with the Assyrians. But King Ahaz made up his mind, I'm going to do things my way. Does that not sound familiar? Our society, I'll do it my way. And he would not turn back to the Lord. And it says the people had turned to Satan seeking their answers. We read that in verses 19 and 20. To the spirits and the mediums and so forth. And therefore the people were driven away into darkness. Gloom and anguish and darkness overtook the land. Now look at chapter 9 verse 1. Here's a promise written on that Christmas card. But there will be no more gloom for her her who was in anguish in earlier times. He treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. And so they were driven away into darkness. Gloom and anguish and darkness overtook the land. As the Assyrians invaded the northern part of Israel and the two northern tribes were Naphtali and Zebulun. And uh, it's known that that region was known as Galilee when Jesus was here upon the earth. And you're going to see, though, that even though world conditions were like this, and the Syrians came and slaughtered the northern tribe of Israel in 722 B.C., and destroyed the cities and towns and took people into captivity, and yet these being the world conditions, especially throughout the nation of Israel when God wrote this early Christmas card, You're going to also see, though, in this Christmas card, a God who, although He severely chastens His own when they turn away from Him, He is still a God of great mercy and compassion. He is still the one who seeks the wanderer, longing to forgive and reinstate in fellowship so that He can mightily bless Him. And you're going to see that God, listen, listen to this, God always keeps His promises. We have a more sure word of prophecy, Peter wrote in Second Peter. God always keeps His promises, and He will even move heaven and earth to do so. And you'll see that this morning. And so now we come to your outline. You have it in the bulletin if you'd like to use it. The promise of victory and blessing. 
the promise of victory and blessing in this early Christmas card from God. First, there's the Assyrian invasion of North Israel. Let me read that and then the promise. Chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. That was when the Assyrians moved in in 722 B.C. In Isaiah's day when he wrote this card. And they obliterated the northern kingdoms of Zebulun and Naphtali and took them into captivity and so forth. But God says there's going to be a time when there's no more gloom. And he goes on, but later on he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation, you shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, a rod of their oppressor, as at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning and fuel for the fire. The promised light. Verse 2, the promised light. When God makes a promise, He always keeps it. Did these people deserve it? Absolutely not. They'd turned away from God. But God made a promise in this early Christmas card. He said there would be a great light. And of course, you recall that was partially fulfilled. Because after the Lord came, and He ministered in northern Galilee in this region of Zebulun and Naphtali, and He ascended back into heaven, one of His apostles Matthew writes that this was the fulfillment, a partial fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 9. In Matthew 4, verses 13 through 16, Matthew wrote, And leaving Nazareth, Jesus came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea. Where? In the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. That's Isaiah 9. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light, and those who were sitting in the land and shadow of death, upon them the light dawned. Of course, Jesus declared what? I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. God, come. he came to reveal the Godhead to fallen mankind. But as wonderful, folks, as wonderful as that is, that it was fulfilled in part back there when Jesus came the first time, there is a huge, greater fulfillment yet to be. And that will be in the future because what God promises, He always performs. Now, what you read in the rest of that, verses 2 through 5, you're talking about Zebulun naturally being delivered. You're talking about them getting a great victory in a war that takes place, and that would be Armageddon and so forth, and about this king who comes, who will be that great light that will establish them as part of the great nation of Israel in that last day. Number three, the promised expansion and joy. And we read that already in verses 3 through 5. He talks about they'll be increased in gladness. They will be glad in your presence. Wow, in his presence. Their Messiah, their Savior will be here. And with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil, and also like in a great victory that Gideon won against the Midianites, so will be their victory. So, I mean, these people are going to be filled full of joy and laughter and gladness because it's going to be an incredibly great day. That's tomorrow's news. And I don't think it's so far away. Well, that brings us to the second movement in our text. So there's going to be victory and blessing. And how will it come about? Well, the Lord writes in his early Christmas card, the person bringing victory and blessing. That's your next major point. The person bringing victory and blessing. Verse 6, the Lord had Isaiah write, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The person bringing victory and blessing. I love this first point 
the certainty of God's promise. The certainty of God's promise. This is beautiful, but by the way, you'll completely miss it in our English language because it does not bring it out. What God promises, listen, what God promises in the written word of God, God always fulfills. He always performs. So what he did here is so unique, it's beautiful, and that is this. This person coming to bring the victory and blessing is so certain, it is so certain, it's as good as done, that God chose to write his early Christmas card using what we call Hebrew prophetic perfects. Now those are Hebrew verbs. Hebrew prophetic perfects. Here is how Isaiah 9, 6 reads in the Hebrew language. For a child, listen to this, a child has been born to us. A son has been given to us. And the government has been resting on his shoulders. And his name has been called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. By the way, this is not the only place in the Scripture that God does that. He did this as well as the New Testament. I love it, and you probably know this passage because we've gone through Romans 6, 7, 8. But look, for example, at Romans 8, verses 29 and 30. You need not turn there, but here's another example of that. Here's what we find it says. For whom he foreknew, that's what? Past tense. Back in time past, he foreknew something. He also predestined, that's past tense. That means what he knew in the past, he says, I predetermined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren, and these whom he predestined, he also called. That's past tense. Now, I was about six or seven when God called me. I don't mean called me to preach, he did that as well. I mean he called me. He impressed upon my mind and heart, Bill, you're a sinner, and based on the authority of my word, you're going to go to hell if you die in that condition. But I sent my son, who came here for the express purpose of going to that cross, and there I took all your sins. That's amazing. Even my future sins, all of them. In fact, he took the sins of the whole world, and I placed them upon him. He became your my scapegoat, if you please. And then he bore your deserved punishment and judgment. I did that, that you might go free. And so about six or seven years of age, I don't know which it was, I got that call. He spoke to my heart. I said, Jesus, I am a sinner. I don't want to go to hell. I want eternal life. Would you come into my heart and save me? And dear ones, he did. And I know many of you could express the same thing. You see, but what does he say? That was past tense. Now, maybe for some of you will be future tense if you're here and you're not saved. But he called you. And then we go on here. He says, whom he called, he also justified. That means he declared you as righteous as his son. How could he do that? How could he dare call you or declare you and me as righteous as his son? Because he gave you his son. He is now your righteousness. He is now your life. And God always sees you in his son. That's why he could declare us righteous and he justified them. And now we get to it. And these whom he justified, what does it say? Anybody can finish that? He also, what was it again? Glorified. Wait a minute. I'm not glorified. You knew that, didn't you? I'm still walking in this flesh with a sinful passion and so forth. But here he says, it's as good as done. I see you seated already in the heavenly places in my son Christ Jesus. You are already, as far as I'm concerned, glorified. He did exactly the same thing he did back there in Isaiah 9, chapter 6. Have you given thought as to just how much depends on God keeping his word when it comes to you? Think about that. Will he really get you safely to heaven? You sinner, you... Does he really and will he always love you with an everlasting love just as he loves his beloved son no matter how you behave? 
Will He really check everything and everyone who comes into your life and make all things work for good, as He said there in Romans 8? Will He indeed provide for all your needs? Will He truly never leave you nor forsake you? And that list goes on and on. You realize how much we have to ask ourselves, will God keep His word? What God promises he always performs. Number two in your outline, this person's uniqueness. This person's uniqueness. It says here in verse six, a, a child is, will be born and a son will be given. Now again, back to the Hebrew. In the Hebrew, it's in the masculine tense. It means a male baby is going to be, a boy is going to be born. And again, in Luke chapter 2, we saw that. We celebrated the Christmas when Jesus stepped out of heaven and he was virgin born and he was born there in that stable uh, physically. A male child was born. Well, then why add a son will be given? I'll tell you why. Because this one always eternally pre-existed. This is God's way of clearly saying this is Deity. This is my son, the second person of the Trinity. He's always eternally existed, so therefore he has to be given. Yes, born as well as a child, but as a son, he eternally existed, therefore he must be given. John 3.16, what amazing Christmas gift. I think Jim preached on that last week. For God so loved the world that he gave his only, what? Begotten son. He gave His Son. Whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Because He always eternally existed as God the Son, He could only be given. And Micah 5, 2 says, But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. Listen now. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. He had to be born in order to have a physical body so as to suffer and die in our place. But he had to be God in order to be able to fully appease God's offended holiness, righteousness, and therefore secure our pardon. Only God in the flesh could provide our salvation. A son will be given. Listen, this is contrary to the teaching of Islam that says that Jesus is just a great prophet. It is contrary to Jehovah's Witness teaching and the Mormon theology that He is a God. No, He is the God. In fact, God couldn't say it in more clear language than He did with the Greek over in Hebrews 1. He is the radiance of His glory and the exact representation of His nature. This is God equal with God the Father, God the Holy Spirit. The second person of the Trinity. Number three, this person's destiny. And the government will rest on his shoulders. That's his destiny. In this early Christmas card written 700 years before God gave his gift to mankind. He says, this is his destiny and the government will rest on his shoulders. You see, he was destined to be born a king. He would come from King David's lineage. The angel met Mary. Gabriel met Mary. He said to her, you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob, listen, forever, forever. And his kingdom will have no end. Be under his per, this person's destiny. And all he's destined to be born a king. He was destined to rule the world. He was destined to rule the world. This Christmas season, I've enjoyed hearing Handel's Messiah many times over. And one thing about that, Handel's Messiah repeatedly talks about the Lord's reign. I love it. Can't, you know, Christmas time, the world likes good Christmas music. And they get the message whether they like it or not. He is destined to reign over the entire world. We've journeyed through most of the book of Revelation, as you know. We only have a couple more messages on that book this uh, first year of, or early in 2015. But we've talked about that journey. 
We've seen from Scripture how he's going to come back and he's going to take control of planet Earth and set up his kingdom. Yes, he's destined to reign over the world. And yet God wrote an early Christmas card and in that card written over 2,700 years ago, he tells us this child who would be born, this child, this son who would be given is going to rule the world and the government will rest on his shoulders. Dear ones, that hasn't happened yet. That hasn't happened. We're not talking about a spiritual reign now. We're talking about a literal reign over this world. And may it happen soon. Because what God promises, He always performs. What God promises, He always performs. You know what? Your belief in the actuality of this event determines your preparedness. If you really don't believe in it, if you don't really believe that time's wrapping up, that we're coming toward the end of time, if you really don't believe what the Bible says over and over in the Old Testament, New Testament, that Jesus is going to literally come back and reign, you're not really too concerned about these things. You're really concerned about how you can get from day to day and do your thing and feel good and all of that. And yet one day it says you're going to have to bow before Him. One day you're going to have to confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It says every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. God will see to that. We'll see that later on in the message. And you know, you might want to get yourself right before this holy God, before this time runs out for you. And it may be sooner than any one of us thinks. Number four, this person's credentials. If the government's going to be upon his shoulders, he's going to rule the world. What are his credentials? Well, number A, his name will be called Wonderful Counselor. We looked at that a couple of weeks ago. Wonderful counselor. That is, he is a wonder of a counselor. He would have to be a wonder of a counselor in order to rule the world, wouldn't he? If he's going to rule the whole world, boy, he's going to have to have incredible counseling abilities. Look at Isaiah 11, just a couple past chapters over. It describes a little bit about him being a wonderful counselor. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of David. That's Jesus, the Messiah. And a branch from the roots His roots will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and strength. The spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. I call that being a wonderful counselor. All-knowing, all-powerful, all-wise. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord, and he will not judge by what his eyes see, I see, nor make a decision by what his ear hears. But with righteousness, he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Also, righteousness will be the belt about his loins and faithfulness the belt about his waist. How wonderful that even today he is the mighty counselor. He knows everything about you and me, our thoughts, our feelings, our emotions, our struggles, our victories. And he loves us with an everlasting love, and that's never going to change. What an amazing God and Savior and Lord we have. And he says, as he reaches out to mankind today, what does he say? Come to me. Here's the God, this wonderful counselor is going to eventually rule the whole world. He says to people individually, come to me, all who are labored or who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. And here's his promise. You will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You know what? I did find rest. Does that mean the struggles are over and the battles? No, not at all. They even get worse. But what rest, what peace, what joy belongs to God's children when they come to Him? And so the wonderful counselor is still calling people. That's why we're not home yet. He's still calling people out all over the world. It's exciting. People are getting saved. Today, thousands will probably come to saving faith as they respond to his woo and call in their lives. And that's true even in a church like this. People can get saved if they will only come. Number B, his name will be called Mighty God. Mighty God. You can understand that. 
I mean, how could this little nation of Israel possibly be delivered from the mighty nation of Assyria that was had taken the north already and were parked right in the front gates or the city walls of Jerusalem during the time of King Hezekiah? How could they possibly be delivered? And then would come the world power of Babylonian when finally they would fall to them in 526 B.C. And how could they be delivered from that? And following them would be under the crushing heel of the Medo-Persians, and that would be followed by Greece and then the Roman Empire. And for that matter, how can the nation of Israel, even today that's surrounded by all those Arab nations whose purpose more than ever before now is to drive them into the sea and annihilate them forever, how could they ever be delivered? And then comes Antichrist. We've seen that already. He will have his day. Satan will have his one world government and one of his main objectives will be to track down and destroy every Jew and certainly destroy the nation of Israel. How in the world could they possibly survive? How could they get the victory? I'll tell you how. Because this one that's going to rule the world is mighty God. Mighty God. And number C, his name will be called Eternal Father, if you like Everlasting Father. This does not mean that he takes the place of the first person of the Trinity. He doesn't take God the Father. He's talking about what we call the economic Trinity. That's how they function. But rather, he will be like a father to those that are his own. To Israel in particular, that remnant. But also to you and me. He will provide for us. He will protect us. He will guide us and direct us and so forth. That's what that means there. And notice it says he is an eternal father. It doesn't stop. He doesn't fail you. Now or tomorrow or ever. He is an incredible, like a father to his children. It reminds me of that special verse that many of you know and could quote. It's uh, John 1.12. But as many as received him. Notice, there's something we have to do. But as many as received him, to them gave he the right to become what? Children of God. Born into his family even to as many as believe on His name. To receive Him means to believe in Him. Believe He's your only hope, your only source of salvation. But you're receiving Him by opening your heart and saying, I believe that, Lord. Come into my heart and be my Savior, my Lord, and my God. And then we see here, number D, His name will be called Prince of Peace. Prince of Peace. Think for a moment about the two places where there is no peace. The hardest places in the whole universe. First, this planet Earth. This evil world. And secondly, the sinful, prideful, rebellious human heart. Those are the two places that are the hardest for peace to come. And the world has existed for centuries. And one world power after another has gotten in control. And have they brought peace to the world? Absolutely not. And why? Because it's an impossibility. Why? Because this world right now is under the control of Satan. And he's dealing with man who has a fallen sinful heart. It can't happen under those conditions. There is only one who can bring lasting peace to the world. There is only one who can bring lasting peace to the heart of an individual. And God wrote in this early Christmas card to introduce us to that one person. The angels spoke to the shepherds when the Lord was born. They said, glory to God in the highest and on earth what? Peace. But peace to who? Among men with whom he is pleased. Who is he pleased with? Who is God pleased with that he fills the heart full of peace? The one that submits to his son as being their only hope, their only savior. That's who receives this peace. Even today, he is bringing wonderful peace to those hearts who accept him as their personal Savior and Lord. And by the way, in the future, he's going to return to this planet and he's going to bring worldwide peace because why? He is the Prince of Peace. My, how the world longs for peace. That brings us to the final movement, the program bringing victory and blessing. The program bringing this victory and blessing. Look with me at verse 7, if you would. Chapter 9. There will be no end to the increase of his government or a peace. 
on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Let's look first at the program bringing victory and blessing at the expanse of his reign. Look for a moment at the expanse of his reign. As under King David, so his kingdom will increase. As God was with David, in far greater portion will he be with David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ. As under King Solomon, so his kingdom will prosper. Shalom is Solomon. You know that means peace. And Israel reached its zenith under Solomon. I mean, even... uh, Silver was like the stones in the street of Jerusalem. There was so much prosperity and so forth under him. So it will be a a kingdom of peace and prosperity. And by the way, there are at least six transformations that are going to result from the Lord Jesus Christ's reign. I just want to share them. They're not in your notes, but six transformations when he comes back to reign. First of all, he's going to save the remnant of Israel. A remnant's going to get saved. I'm looking forward to that because when they are, it says it'll be like life from the dead for you and me. That's Romans chapter 11, I believe it is. 9 or 11. Anyway, a remnant is going to get saved. Think about uh, Revelation chapter 7. Those 144,000 Jews, they're going to get saved. 12,000 from each one of the 12 tribes. And then do you think about those two witnesses, those Jewish witnesses over Revelation chapter 11? And through their ministries, multitudes of Jewish people are going to get saved. A remnant will get saved. Secondly, he will fight and deliver Israel. Boy, that's being set, the stage is being set for that right now. He's going to come back, he's going to fight, and he's going to deliver Israel. According to Zechariah chapter 12, all the nations are going to converge on Jerusalem, surrounded with a purpose to destroy her, and the Lord Jesus Christ will return to this earth, fight for and deliver Israel, and establish her in her land as the premier nation of the world. Number three, he's going to judge the nations and rule this world. Those could be separated, but he's going to judge all the nations, the sheep and the goat nations, and rule this world. Number four, he's going to bind Satan. Satan's no longer going to have access to the people on the earth. He'll be put in that bottomless pit, bound for a thousand years. And most likely all the fallen angels that are under his command are also going to be cast into that bottomless pit. Imagine just for a moment what that's going to mean. I mean, all you and I have ever known was a world system controlled by Satan. The masses and the nations have been like puppets on a string responding as they jerk those strings. Number five, he will remove the curse from the earth. That's even in, in, uh, by the way, Isaiah chapter 11, a couple of chapters over. In 65 and 66 as well. I mean, what's it going to mean when the curse is removed? Longevity of age. For those who enter with physical bodies into the millennial reign of Christ, they're going to live a long, long time. No more will wild, deadly behavior be exemplified among the animal kingdom. No more convulsions of nature destructive storms, hurricanes, tornadoes, or devastating earthquakes, no more tsunamis or volcanic eruptions, no more famines. Rather, there will be bumper crops all over the world causing productivity to be at its highest. He will remove the curse. And number six, number six I really love, he's going to exalt you and me and allow us to reign with him. That's all in this early Christmas card from God in chapter 7. He says there will be no end to the increase of his government. That's the expanse of his kingdom we just looked at. About 200 years after Isaiah's ministry, the Babylonians did conquer the southern tribe of Judah and Benjamin. You might remember, oh, the mighty, powerful king Nebuchadnezzar had this dream. It about cost the lives of all of his wise men. But there was a Hebrew captive there by the name of Daniel that you know about. And he came into the king and he was able to tell the king both his dream as well as its interpretation. And when he shared that dream with the king, he said this. Remember the king saw this great metallic image of a man. The head of gold and 
the, uh, the, the chest of, uh, uh, of, of different metals all the way down. And Daniel told the king that the statue's head of gold represented his kingdom, Babylonia. The breasts and the arms of silver represented the next kingdom, Medo-Persia. And that would be followed by the belly and thighs of bronze representing the kingdom of Greece. And then he saw those legs of iron representing Rome that would follow Greece. And then the toes mixed with iron and clay represented the final world power out of which Antichrist would emerge and rule. But there's more to King Nebuchadnezzar's dream. He saw a stone cut out without hands that struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them along with all the rest of the statue. And the whole thing was blown away like chaff from the summer threshing floor until there was not a trace of it left. Not a trace left. Then the stone became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. And Daniel went on to explain that to King Nebuchadnezzar. He said, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. And that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms. And listen to what he says final. But it will itself endure forever. And here he writes it in this early Christmas card, even before Daniel's day. Number two, the character of his reign. The character of his reign. His reign will be characterized by enduring peace, it says. There will be no end to the increase of his government or a peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom. You know, many people, when asked what they think the world needs most of all, they always say the same thing, don't they, usually? Peace. Peace. We just wish there was peace throughout the world. Peace in the human heart. Just think of all the oppressed, suffering people in our world who are in that condition because there's no peace where they live. Nations practice genocide. Powerful people in positions come in and take what uh, supplies are provided for their people. Because there is no peace, there's no food supply, there's no medicine, and that list can go on and on. A terrible world where there's no peace. When, <coughs> when our Lord came the first time on that first Christmas morning, He came to provide peace to the human heart. When He comes the second time, He will come to provide peace for the whole world because He will reign forevermore. I think about, he says, to establish his kingdom and to hold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. You see, he's going to reign as a benevolent despot. The world's never seen that. You have despots, but you don't have benevolent despots. One who's got absolute sovereignty and power, but benevolently reigns in the behalf of his people. The world's never seen that. This king will sovereignly reign with absolute justice. We're told he will rule the world with a rod of iron. This actually speaks, by the way, ruling with a shepherd's staff, a staff that both protects and punishes when necessary. He will reign in absolute righteousness. He's not going to rule by man's standards. His standards are absolutely true and right. How many of God's people down through the ages have been mocked, humiliated, blasphemed, imprisoned, brutalized, and murdered, and nothing was ever done to set the record straight. But dear ones, this king, this ruling one, will set the record straight. Praise God. Throughout the world, man twists and perverts God's clearly declared standards of right and wrong. We have lawyers, we have judges, we have courts, and they know little about God's standard of right and wrong and justice. I think about that Christmas carol. I don't think we sang it this year. Maybe we did when I was not here. I heard the bells on Christmas Day. Great words. And in despair I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Yet, pealed the bells more loud and deep. 
God is not dead, nor doth He sleep. The wrong shall fail. The right prevail with peace on earth, goodwill to men. When's that going to happen? Well, God wrote an early Christmas card. He told you in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7. When this one comes to reign, bringing victory and blessing. Psalm 19 describes His reign in righteousness. I love it. I'm sure you will love it as well. Psalm 19 says, The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. How many souls need restored? The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. Isn't that good? They're right. They rejoice the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. Tremendous psalm. Psalm 19. When He comes again to reign over the whole world, His reign will be characterized by justice and righteousness and peace. Number three, the duration of His reign. The duration of His reign. Verse 7 says, There will be no end to the increase of his government or peace on the throne of David over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness. And here it is, from then on and forevermore. From then on and forevermore. Again, I refer back to Daniel. He wrote, But the stone that struck the statute became a great mountain. By the way, remember what the toes were made of? Iron and clay, and that's the Antichrist and Satan's final one world government. But this stone's going to strike that one world government. And all that was represented in it before with uh, Egypt, and you can go on to Assyria, and then to uh, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, right up to this last major world power. And it's going to strike that statue Antichrist and his kingdom, Satan's last attempt to accomplish his purpose, and it will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. You know why? Because what God promises, he always performs. I think back to that first Christmas and how even here in 700 B.C., I imagine those people wonder, will this ever happen? Will it ever happen? And even when Mary and Joseph were alive, the question then, will it ever happen? And guess what? It did gloriously happen. We live today and say, will this really happen? Is he really going to literally come back? Will he really take charge of the nations of the world? Will He really deliver Israel? Will He really save a remnant? Will I actually go into the kingdom and reign with Him? It will happen because what God promises, God always performs. We have the more sure word of prophecy. Look more carefully in that early Christmas card from God. He wrote that His Son is coming again. And when he does, what light will hit Israel? We saw that in chapter 9, verses 2 through 5. He'll deliver the remnant of Israel, saving them and making them a great nation. He will set up his millennial or thousand-year reign over the world. At the end of that thousand-year reign, Satan will be released, and he will gather up all the people like the sand of the seashore that have been born during the millennial reign of Christ, and they'll try to go up to Jerusalem and overthrow him, but fire will come down out of heaven and consume them. And then God says he will create the new heavens and the new earth, and the eternal state will begin, and you and I are going to enter into an incredible time, if I can call it time, of bliss, of joy, of complete, full Unending satisfaction. It will be incredible. We'll enter into the eternal state where we will enjoy Him in bliss forever. There will be, listen to me, there will be no going back into sin and starting all this evil and sorrow and suffering death over again. Why will that be? Why can I say that? Why can you bank on that? The duration of His reign will be from then on and forevermore. That's why what God promises, 
He always performs. And now we come to number four, the guarantee of his reign. The guarantee of his reign. I love how verse 7 ends. How God signs off his Christmas card, if you please, this early one. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Boy, that's backing it up. The zeal of the Lord of hosts. He even throws in all those righteous angels. But the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Because what God promises, He always performs. If you know your Bible, I know many of you do, you know that from the very fall of Genesis chapter 3, and you trace it chapter by chapter, book by book, all the way until you get to chapter 20 of Revelation, what is Satan trying to do? Doing his level best to overthrow that which God promised. Throwing everything he can to make sure God cannot fulfill his promise. Does he win? Never. Never. And so you see the struggle all the way. By the way, that ought to encourage you with your life as well. Yes, you've got ups and downs. Yes, you struggle. Yes, you fall. Yes, you fail. Sometimes it's a long time before you even get up. But God says, I'm with you and I will get you up. And you will go into heaven. You will enter into my reign with me. If indeed you're in my family. Because God keeps his promises. What he promises, he always performs. Let me share two examples of God's zeal in action. Two examples. First of all, his zeal in destroying 185,000 Assyrians who were camping right outside the walls of Jerusalem during the time of King Hezekiah. This was trouble. They'd already subjugated and conquered the northern Israel. Zebulun, Naphtali, and those tribes. They had already taken the, uh, the, uh, the enforced cities that were there to protect Jerusalem. They'd already taken them as well. And now you got 185,000 right outside the gate, and they're mocking Hezekiah and the people on the wall. They're saying, look, okay, if Hezekiah can give you 2,000 men, I'll give you 2,000 horses. If you can get 2,000 men, in other words, you have no power to resist us. What did Hezekiah did? do? He did what King Ahaz would not do. He knew he was in trouble. He turned to the Lord. Did you get that? Do you do that? Do I do that when you're in trouble? He turned to the Lord. He knew his back was against the wall. He knew the Assyrians could destroy Jerusalem easily. They could starve them out. But he turned to the Lord and you saw the zeal of the Lord because overnight 185,000 Powerful, well-trained, well-equipped Assyrian soldiers lay dead outside the wall of that city. I'd call that the zeal of the Lord accomplishing His purpose. By the way, He'll do it again. And He'll do it for Israel. Let me show you. There's going to come a time, according to Ezekiel 38, this is very new future, this is probably tomorrow's newspaper uh, news, Ezekiel 38 and 18 through 23, we find that in the north, evidently that's Russia, and her Arab, Arab, Arab allies are going to come down and attack Jerusalem and Israel and try to destroy her once for all. And you can see that all lining up today. But what happens here? Listen. Ezekiel 38, 18 through 23. You might want to write that in your notes. Ezekiel 38, 18 through 23. It will come about on that day. When God comes against the land of Israel, declares the Lord God, that my fury will mount up in my anger. Listen to this. In my zeal. In my zeal and in my blazing wrath, I declare that on that day there will surely be a great earthquake in the land of Israel. The fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, the beasts of the field, all the creeping things that creep on the earth, and all the men who are on the face of the earth will shake at my presence. The mountains also will be thrown down. The steep pathways will collapse and every wall will fall to the ground. We're talking about a major earthquake. Maybe that's that, uh, Revelation chapter 6. I will call for a sword against him on all my mountains, declares the Lord God. Every man's sword will be against his brother. 
with pestilence and with blood. I will enter into judgment with him, and I will reign on him and on his troops and on the many peoples who are with him, a torrential rain with hailstones, fire and brimstone. I will magnify myself sanctify myself and make myself known in the sight of many nations and they will know that I am the Lord. That's what happens when God acts in zeal. That's what happens in my zeal. I will deliver my people. And so he says here, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Let me give you three reasons why God's zeal guarantees His Son's reign. Three reasons. Number one, because of His special love and jealousy for His chosen people, Israel. Because of His special love and jealousy for His chosen people, Israel. That has never changed. The Apostle Paul described that special love. He says, from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the Father's. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Romans eleven twenty eight and 29. You see what God promises, he always performs. But a second reason, a second reason, because of his jealousy for his divine name and word. God is jealous for his divine name and his word. Word. God's very reputation and character would be at stake if He did not do what He said He would do. But thirdly, thirdly, because of His special love for His only begotten Son, who when He came that first time was mocked, scorned, rejected, and ultimately murdered, being crucified upon a cross. God's zeal will see to it that the record is set straight once and for all. For He has declared in His written word, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of of God. You know, then why would I not want to humbly bow now and confess it? By the way, that's Romans 10, 9 and 10, is it? Romans 10, 9 and 10, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, that means He's God. That's what you're saying. I believe He's God. And believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead. What did He make a promise there? What was it? Thou shalt be saved. For with the mouth Man makes confession with a heart he believes unto righteousness. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Well, we've now celebrated another Christmas. We've looked back at our Lord's first coming for the purpose of providing you and me our salvation, our redemption. And we could never live with him. We could never reign with him. We could never go to heaven unless he came that first time to provide that salvation. He came in humility then in order to go to the cross so that we could be saved. But listen, dear ones, we're moving into 2015. I know he may come back before 2015 begins. By the way, with me, that's okay. That's all right. But I'll tell you, we're moving into 2015 and we look forward. We're looking to what he made a promise. He wrote an early Christmas card 2,700 years ago. Did he fulfill the first part of that? Amen. Yes, he did. Will he fulfill the second part? Amen. Yes, he will. And I think it's going to be soon. So we need to be lifting up our head because our redemption indeed does draw nigh. For a child will be born to us, a son was given to us. That promise was fulfilled when God stepped out of heaven and his son was born of the Virgin Mary. But then he's coming again and the government... And the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or a peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. Why do I know it's going to happen? The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. This is yet future. As we think on that, one can only wonder what 2015 is going to bring. But whatever brings, let's live for Him. Let's grow in His grace and knowledge. He said, I am glorified in this, 
that you bear much fruit. May that happen in 2015 as we look for our Savior to come again. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this early Christmas card that you wrote. How wonderful to focus on your first coming Lord Jesus Christ. And it's history now, but it's glorious. You provided our salvation. I mean, we're here this morning. Most all of us are saved because you came that first time. And Holy Spirit, you took the word, the more sure word of prophecy, the scriptures. You opened up our heart and mind and you saved us. How we thank you for our salvation. And Lord, that's not complete. It's not complete. You're going to come again. In the meanwhile, we're going to live for you. We're going to grow in your grace and knowledge. We're going to serve you. We're going to worship you. And we pray that we might bear much fruit and bring great glory to you. But like John prayed at the last book, the last chapter that he wrote in Revelation, our hearts say the same thing, Lord. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen.